One, the way I've framed this for you is that the first part of Leviticus was giving us a vocabulary for worship, and now we are developing the syntax and grammar of living our lives out in worship practically. And so we come together. That's what Sunday's about. We come together to learn and practice the habit of worship, how to live together through the hope of Jesus Christ, how to spur each other on in Christ's name towards love and good deeds in the name of Jesus. And this morning, we resume our practicing as we come to Leviticus 19, and we're going to jump to 23 and 25 as well. I'd like to ask Stacy Hurtado to come forward as she's going to be reading our scripture to us this morning. You can applaud. That would be totally okay. Her daughter started it, and then you guys can finish it. That's how it should be. Good morning. So this morning we're starting our reading on Leviticus 19.19, which is in page 83 of the Pew Bible. I'm reading without glasses. Show off. <laughs> see? See? <laughs> Keep my decrees. Do not mate different kinds of animals. Do not plant your field with two kinds of seed. Do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. And the next reading is from Leviticus. Leviticus 23, 1 through 3. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, these are my appointed festivals, the appointed festivals of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. There are six days when you may work, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, a day of sacred assembly. You are not to do any work. Wherever you live, it is a Sabbath to the Lord. And then from Leviticus 25, 1 through 7. The Lord said to Moses at Mount Sinai, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land I am going to give you, the land itself must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years sow your fields, and for six years prune your vineyards and gather their crops. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a year of Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Do not sow your fields or prune your vineyards. Do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the grapes of unattended vines. The land is to have a year of rest. Whatever the land yields during the Sabbath year will be food for you, for yourself, your male and female servants, and the hired workers and temporary residents who live among you, as well as for your livestock and the wild animals in your land. Whatever the land produces may be eaten. This is the word of the Lord. We were in Leviticus 19 last week, but there's no way that I could leave Leviticus 19 without focusing on the one verse that you heard read that uh, is actually got three different commands in it. But whenever you say you're going to talk about, preach on Leviticus, everyone always points to one of these in Leviticus 19. It's that odd verse you heard Stacy read that talks about not wearing clothes of mixed fibers and fabrics. You preach on Leviticus, everyone goes, what's that about? No more leisure suits. Wow. Well, that's not the interpretation I was going for this morning. But there's a lot of things that could be said. But let me suggest one thing, which we'll kind of we'll build upon, is that what's in view with all three of these decrees is this presumption, our presumption, that we can improve on creation. It's our impulse to play God. One of the foundational revelations in the book of Genesis is that there is a consistency 
and order, a coherent structure versus, at the beginning, the chaos about the world that God created. There's a, a consistency and order, a con coherent structure. The Lord, we're told in Genesis 1, and it's actually repeated in Leviticus chapter 11, made everything in creation work according to its kind or its species. In practical terms, you and I can rest easy that when we plant a lemon tree, you don't have to wonder if it's going to sprout cucumbers. It's going to grow lemons. But more than this, in Genesis... When our father at the end of creation looked over his work, you'll recall that he declared it to be good, to be very good, to be beautiful. So what, what's get, being got at, at this one, in this one verse, Leviticus 19.19, 19, I think, is to think you can improve upon the Lord's design is not only arrogant, it's not only insulting, but it's the beginning, and this is the crucial part, it's the beginning of a loss of dependence upon our father. Now, if you're, if you're familiar with what happens in Genesis, you might be thinking, pushing back on me a little bit, but what about in Genesis where God gives us the creative mandate, where God turns to Adam and Eve and says, fill the earth, show me what you can do. And again, that's a, a good comment, good thought, but it's important. There's a huge difference between working with creation versus seeking to play God and to improve creation. What Leviticus gets at here in 1919 and elsewhere in the book, it will come back to this in chapter 19 and as it goes on, is respect the order of things. Don't manipulate the structure. You know, the idea is that at the very least we need to be wary. We need to be humble enough to ask questions when we think to rebuild what God has created and make it better. I'm a... This verse brings to mind to me a, a very favorite scene I, I, in a movie. It's also a book, Jurassic Park. I, I'm sure most of us have seen this movie or read this book, but if you haven't, it's a, a, a story about a very, very rich man who discovers the ability and brings back the dinosaurs and populates them on an island as a tourist attraction. And in the midst of doing this, playing God, uh, there's this scene where they're debating the, 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 the wisdom of doing this, and, and one of the key characters basically says in the midst of this debate about bringing back the dinosaurs, he says this, you were so preoccupied with whether or not you could, you didn't stop to think whether or not you should. And that's, in essence, I think what's here in 1919. Keep my decrees, God starts it out with. Follow my instructions. And that's not just applicable to this one verse, but the whole book. Keep my decrees. Follow my instructions. Respect the order and design of creation. Don't manipulate the structure. Now, there are lots of examples I imagine you're thinking of of how this relates to our daily lives. There are lots of things I could bring up that we could debate in terms of how this speaks to our ethics. Lots of topics that we could talk about, especially in our modern lives, things that are very controversial. And we, I could bring them up this morning and we could divide the room on whether or not we think this applies or not. But rather than do all that, let's instead consider the one example of this principle, this idea of following the instructions, that is relevant to all of our lives. Let's look at the one manifestation of not disrespecting our Father's design for creation that we all struggle with. It's one of the most original and basic commands from the Bible. And you heard Stacy read it when she read Leviticus chapter 23. It's the honoring of the Sabbath. I, I think it is so God, God's, God's work, it's so fascinating that we end up here this Sunday. Because if you think about it, last Monday... We celebrated the importance and contributions of work to the national economy by taking a day off. 
In, ba- in backyards, around barbecues, in, in, or under umbrellas, or around bonfires at beaches, most of us last Monday took a day off. We enjoyed a shared day of rest. It's interesting to me that we don't call this annual holiday rest day. We call it labor day. And the reason why I say it's so fascinating that we're here today is because what we see in the text is that what we just practiced collectively nearly a week ago is exactly what our Father commands us to do together, not once a year, but every seven days of our lives. We are instructed to honor the Sabbath. We are told to rest. Now we're going to still stay in Leviticus, but jump around to some other scriptures, because whenever you talk about the Sabbath, and I've done a sermon series on the Sabbath, I've preached other sermons on the Sabbath, the Sabbath can divide the room. (laughs) The Sabbath can divide the room in a church because there's lots of controversy about the Sabbath. And it's important this morning that we kind of clarify some of the confusion in order to appreciate what God has for us in Leviticus. Many Christians get confused about the Sabbath for this reason, perhaps among others. We get focused on the day rather than on the principle. As I talked about last week, this is a classic example of where we focus on the letter of the law rather than pay attention to the spirit of the law. Many of us have grown up, who've grown up in the church, or whether it's been a while uh, since we've heard this, but many of us have ingrained in us that Sunday is the Sabbath. And we've learned that the regulations for the Sabbath laid out in the Old Testament should be transferred to Sunday. At one point in our nation's history, we actually had laws. Government created laws to back this up. Blue laws, they were called. But what I want to say to you right from the get-go is that teaching, that emphasis was incorrect. It was not right. And and it's right here in Leviticus. One of the things we we notice in Leviticus, which makes Leviticus unique for us in understanding the Sabbath, is that the concept of the Sabbath in Leviticus, while generally applied to the seventh day, is not solely confined to it. Consider when we learned about the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, we were told, which falls on the tenth day, by the way, is considered by the Lord to be a Sabbath. And in chapter 23, there's, after what Stacy read for us, a listing of different holidays that God gives to the people. And two of those holidays, Pentecost and Tabernacles, two of the holy week-long festivals, emphasize the eighth day as the Sabbath. What I'm getting at is already in Leviticus, what we see is the precise day was not the issue as much as the precise behavior, the orientation to do no work. But... As you know, if you know anything about the Bible, is even that, the orientation of do no work, became sort of a hang-up for the Israelites. Later, Jewish teachers, the Pharisees, worked so hard to define what not working is that their interpretation of the Sabbath stiffened into restrictions that were so tight that for many people, you were actually happier spending the day at the office than observing the Sabbath. By the time we get to the New Testament, it's, it's actually almost comical because by the time we get to the New Testament, even Jesus' own acts of mercy, his works of mercy, get cited as Sabbath violations. And this would be comical for us as we read the Gospels, but here's the thing, that same tension and controversy still carries over into much of our contemporary Christian Sabbath practices. I can't tell you how much pastoral counseling I do at times for people who've been burned on this understanding of the Sabbath. Or this guilt that they carry because they're not observing the Sabbath. But beloved, both now and then when we get legalistic about the Sabbath, Jesus himself tells us that we're missing the point. When he says the Sabbath was made for man. Man was not made for the Sabbath. 
In other words, it's not about whether we literally observe a 24-hour period of no work and all rest. And if you think that I'm making this up or I'm pulling this uh, out of Scripture incorrectly, Paul, the Apostle Paul, will further underscore this for us. This, this tension, this Sabbath controversy comes up when he writes to the Colossians. And in the second chapter of writing to the Colossians, Paul will reinforce this clarification that the Sabbath is not about a literal 24-hour period of no work and all rest. When he writes, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance of which belongs to Christ. Paul says here that the Sabbath day is a shadow. And we've encountered that in Leviticus. These things that we see, these rituals in Leviticus, are shadows, we were told, of things that would be fulfilled in Christ. The shadow means that the Sabbath reflects a spiritual truth. It's not the reality itself. Okay, well then what's the reality? If the Sabbath is not about a literal 24-hour day, then what's it all about? If we go back to a letter that we looked at a couple of weeks ago in the New Testament, the letter to the Hebrews, which I told you then is sort of a commentary on the book of Leviticus, we see in chapter 4 the answer to this question. How do we understand what the Sabbath is all about? What is God getting at in Genesis and again in Leviticus and elsewhere when he, he underscores the Sabbath? In the fourth chapter to that letter to the Hebrews, and you can turn to it if you want or I'll guide you through it. In that fourth chapter, the author is, starts to refer to Psalm 95. He starts to refer to Psalm 95, where in that psalm, God is frustrated. He's frustrated at the hardness of the Israelites' hearts. Their hard hearts leads him to declare that they shall never enter his rest. And the author of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, shows us, he, he, he takes us through, that God's not back then nor now talking about rest as simply entering the promised land, which that's what most people thought it meant. It's not even the cessation of work or the weekly Sabbath, the writer to the letter to the, of the letter to the Hebrews concludes by putting it this way, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. The Israelites, hard hearts. In case you missed it, notice what the author of that letter makes clear in verse 9. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God as they rest from their own work. Beloved, in other words, entering God's rest is a picture of depending completely on him. Relying totally on the work that he's done for us in delivering us from our slavery to sin and death. God says it in Leviticus to the Israelites. The Sabbath is about depending completely upon me as I have just given you the exodus from Egypt and passed you through the waters of the Red Sea. And here in the New Testament, it's connected where the writer says the Sabbath rest of God is depending completely upon this God who for all the world, not just the Israelites, delivered the world from sin and death through Christ's victory on the cross and through the resurrection. We must rest from our own work. We must stop trying to make ourselves righteous. Because as we've already seen in Leviticus, we can't do it. We can't do it. What the Sabbath is about is to cease living on our own, to stop living independently from our Father. What we need is to acknowledge our gracious dependence upon Him, His gracious provision for us, 
That's what a life lived in worship looks like. That's how we fulfill the Sabbath. Again, many of us hear this, and yet we still, because it's been ingrained in us, still have a mistaken conception of this idea of Sabbath. We hear rest, and we think resting means sitting back on our hands and waiting for God to complete his work and take us to heaven. Sometimes this is manifest in our, in our, in our own understanding of, of, of being a Christian in that we tell each other in our relationships, we actually tell each other, our counsel, our Christian counsel is to do nothing in our relationship with the Father. We tell each other, just let go and let God. And I'm here to tell you this morning, that's bad theology. To so just let go and let God. Because once again, we're missing the point of the Sabbath that God gives us. If you're concerned that rest simply means doing nothing, then let me also highlight something I read to you from Hebrews chapter 4 that you also might have missed that will jump off the page when I read it again out loud. We notice something fascinating as there's this idea of entering into our rest by resting from our work. Because in that same chapter, the author says in talking about God's Sabbath rest, the author writes, make every effort to enter that rest. Make every effort to enter that rest. That's like go to sleep without sleeping. Make every effort to enter that rest. This seeming paradox, though, is not only the key to the principle of the Sabbath, but it's also, beloved, the essence of discipleship, of what it means to follow Jesus. Resting in the Lord as followers of Jesus Christ does not mean, it's not simply to let go and to let God. We are, our life as Christians is not to one day say we believe, then to get dunked underwater or sprinkled, and then wait for God to perfect us and take us to heaven. We are to work as followers of Jesus. Hear that. We are to work as followers of Jesus. We are called to work hard and attentively. But our work consists of learning to depend on the authority and power of the Holy Spirit who is at work within us. We are to regularly turn towards our Father, not allowing ourselves to be distracted by the entanglements and temptations around us. That's why we gather. We are to daily, out of what we practice here together in worship, we are to daily devote ourselves wholeheartedly to our brother, our Lord and Savior Jesus, consciously and purposefully turning our thoughts and our will to him so that we are no longer living and laboring under our false identity conceived by sin. This is where it's all coming together. This is where I'm pushing you. Do you know Jesus as a person rather than an idea? Do you know Jesus as something more than an icon that you have on a cross or on a t-shirt? Is Jesus as real, if not the most real, real person you know in your life? Because that's what our life in Christ, that's what our life is worship. That's what honoring the Sabbath is about. That's complete dependence, where we are continually turning, reorienting, placing everything in our lives into the hands of Jesus and saying, teach me, show me, guide me, lead me. That's the work that we're called to do. And that's why we need to do it together because we have to remind ourselves and each other again and again the truth of who we are in Christ, of who's in control of this world, of whose image we are to reflect to the world and of whose image we are being conformed to changed into as we live for him in this world. So, beloved, we are to rest. Yes, rest. But if you didn't hear it, it's an active rest. 
It's an active dependence upon God. And the word that Jesus used to describe this kind of rest, the, the word, one single word that Jesus just epitomizes the Sabbath, and it's a beautiful word, is abide. Abide. We keep the Sabbath. We follow the Lord's instructions. His design for us when we abide in him. When we actively rest, when we cultivate a regular dependence upon him. And you know what this means? That rightly understood, the Sabbath isn't just once, a once in every seven days event. Like I've been telling you. What this means is that the Sabbath is the regular rhythm of our lives. We must daily, hourly, turn away from ourselves and our efforts. And that's a lot of work, trust me. And lean on God and on his power at work within us and through us. And it's in this way that we fulfill the Sabbath. What I love about Leviticus is it's like peeling back an onion. Because we could stop there, but there's more that Leviticus has for us about the Sabbath. Leviticus, as you heard in 23, brings home something that's so significant for us. Our Father doesn't just command you and I, us, we... As individuals to rest. We hear this whole thing about the Sabbath as myself, my own experience of the Sabbath. But notice that our Father, God tells the people to rest. The people. The Lord insists that communities keep Sabbath time together. Why is this? Because, beloved, we are in this. This relationship with God. Life on this planet together. I've said it before, but I'll say it again. You won't find much of an argument or a defense for the rights of personal privacy in the Bible. We get all hot and heavy. We have all kinds of arguments outside of Scripture, but you will not find in Scripture any argument to back up the idea that you have a right to personal privacy, that it's you, yourself, and no one else. God doesn't speak to you. God speaks to y'all. And this is because we need mutual accountability and encouragement. We need it. We need mutual accountability and encouragement to stop, to cease, to settle down and just abide in the presence of our Father. And by the way, scripturally, again and again, where is the Father present? Where is Jesus present? Where is the Holy Spirit present? In community. Community. The communal aspect of the Sabbath is also God's recognition of how groups work. And what I'm referring to here is the power of positive or negative reinforcement, peer pressure. Because here's the thing, if everyone doesn't rest, then the truth is no one truly can. You see, the way we live, if if we're not doing this together, is either we're on the positive side, we're actively sitting in the solidarity of rest together, we're all resting together in God's presence, or we're all suffering because of the conspiracy towards busyness. The tyranny of the urgent. And I'm here to tell you, we live in a world where because of poor teaching about the Sabbath, abuses in terms of the Sabbath, we've abandoned the baby and the bathwater at the same time. And we in the church have collectively just sold, sold, sold away our birthright. And we are victims and perpetuators. We are part of the conspiracy of busyness. We are part of the propagators of the tyranny of the urgent. And beloved, this is a rally cry in Leviticus that we need to stand up for the Sabbath. We need to stand up not for the literal 24-hour days, not to get legalistic, but to stand up on this principle of resting and abiding in God, being actively dependent upon our Father. And we need to do it practically. Uh, I'll give you a quick example. Huntington Beach High School, my kids are both going there. One of their friends 
part of playing sports. And I love sports. I watch them. I love them. But all of a sudden, and when you start high school, my son's a freshman. Jack, who's out back there, is a freshman. It's hard when you go to a school with hundreds of kids. And you're not necessarily in the same classes. Lunchtime becomes sort of a sacred space to be prayed for each other, to pray together, to know that you, you, the people that you know are there. And that was the space for them until one of their friends was basically told by their coach, well, we're practicing now during lunchtime. We're practicing during lunchtime. And what frustrated me about that requirement is this is exactly what I'm talking about. We're not respecting that space that we need for rest. And it's rampant. It's rampant. We need to stand up for this idea of rest and abiding specifically in the presence of our God. But let's be honest. Guys, can we be honest this morning? Culturally, socially, for most of us, if we really are being truthful, for most of us here this morning, rest is perceived to be a waste of time. You and I, we admire people who work long hours and hard hours. We equate success in life with that very formula. That's what we tell each other. That's what we teach our kids. Working overtime, that's what gets you complimented. That's what gets you noticed as being ambitious and dedicated. Working on your day off, that's how you get ahead. That's how you get promoted. Your boss will tell you that. You know, we want to see you're going to put in something a little extra. Beloved, we live in a world where more and more, in ways we don't even consciously realize, productivity equates to our value and our worth. After all, and, we get, and this is where we get scriptural, this is where we get all spiritual. After all, we tell ourselves, idle hands are the devil's playground. There's no rest for the wicked, and the righteous don't need any. Work hard and sacrifice. You have to strive. You have to pay your dues. You have to earn the right to rest. We live in a world upside down where part of the generational tenets we have, tension that we have, is that many of our grandparents, many of our own parents, they bought into this model and they've worked long and hard. And so when retirement comes, they can barely get up anymore. They can barely breathe. And they are basically like, heck yeah, you need to take care of me. Heck yeah, it's my time. I paid my dues. Retirement's all about me, baby. And it's like a fraternity hazing. Because guess what it does? All it does is for the younger generation, us who are coming up next, we grumble and gripe about how hard we have to work, but then our time's going to come, and we're going to put it on the backs of our kids. This is not a biblical model for community. God says we are to rest. We are to be dependent upon him together. <laughs> and even if we're not arguing that we have to earn the right to rest, can we also confess another truth? For, for, for I think probably all of us in this room, we have so much going on, we have so much to do in our lives, we turn and say, who can actually afford to rest? What we can't afford to do is to stop working. I mean, right now you're thinking about your list and all the things you have going on. If you stop, it's just going to get higher and higher and higher and it's going to just knock you over. I mean, we sit here, we hear Sabbath, and we think, oh, that's a novel idea. That's so wonderful. That's lovely. But we struggle to envision a day devoted to rest when we haven't finished all the projects and stuff that's on our list right now. And so we sit here this morning, if we're honest, and rest, we convince ourselves, is a luxury that very few of us can afford to have. How many of us have said, I can't afford to take a day off? I can't afford to take vacation. I can't afford to go to sleep. I can't afford to go to church, to be in worship. Beloved, thankfully, our Father declares that rest isn't a luxury. It's one of our most basic needs and what's awesome, what we see in Leviticus, is that it's a need that our Lord not only commands us to take care of, he also carves out deliberate spaces for us to do so. 
Leviticus chapter 23 has been called God's calendar because it describes specific festivals that the Lord had planned for the people of Israel. Notice that while Leviticus is often considered the heaviest rule book in the Bible, among all those detailed instructions is also the command to celebrate heavily. Not once, not twice, but eight times our Father mandates that his people party, that they stop working and take a holiday. And not just any old holiday. The Lord outlines these ornate festivals with particular rituals spanning over several days, all designed for the people of Israel to act out the truths of God's grace and goodness. But the Lord begins his description of all these feasts in 23 by highlighting the day of rest because all of these various festivals are special extended forms of the Sabbath. And beloved, if we immerse ourselves into the rhythm of God's calendar as it's given to us in Leviticus, we're, we're not going to be surprised to discover that our Father tells time a little differently than we do. If you look here, notice our Lord, the Lord's calendar, God's calendar, marks only time off work. And this should seem a little strange to us because for most of us, our personal calendars are not marked by our days off. They're marked by all the stuff we have yet to accomplish. And this is once again indicative of how our work tends to give us our identity and security. How we tend to feel guilty taking days off rather than enjoying the fruits of labor. God's calendar is marked by taking days off. Our calendar is marked by all the things we have to do. Leviticus turns all this around. Rather than treating holy days as intrusions on our time, our Father views holidays as sacred time. Because through the festivals that the Lord pictures for us, he teaches us to practice what life in relationship, in dependence upon him, looks like. And that's why these aren't really holidays. They're holy days. And that's where holiday comes from. Holy days. One word, holiday. That's why Leviticus says again and again, do no work. It's a Sabbath to the Lord. God is saying this is our time together. But our Father... His desire doesn't rest here. You heard it in Leviticus 25. The onion keeps getting peeled back. Our, our Father's desire for rest doesn't end here. It doesn't end with us. With chapter 25, we see this incredible thing that God stubbornly insists on a Sabbath for all creation. God declares a rest for all creation. He commands us to give the earth a break. The Lord gives Moses instructions for a radical holiday. Telling him that not only should the community take a break for work a day out of every week, but out of every seven years, they should give the land a Sabbath. They should let their animals have a Sabbath too. Some of us have had holidays, three-day weekends. Can you imagine a year-long holiday? That's what God establishes here, a year-long holiday. For one year, in case you missed it in 25, for one year... The Israelites may eat whatever perennials grow in their fields by themselves, but they may not plant or harvest. They may not plant or harvest. That means no stocking up. That means no earning a profit. Can you imagine if we actually in our modern times lived a year like that? We would be crucified. The economy can't shut down for a year. We can't just live off of what the Lord provides that's just insanity. That's what that is, and yet it's what the Lord commands. Fully rely on my provision. Trust that all that you need will be provided. And beloved, it's amazing what happens when we follow our Father's instructions. The Sabbath principle here, we see it as God, in Leviticus, God lays it out, is that we see in nature how following God's instructions works out in our favor every time. 
If you were to go back to Leviticus 19, there's just this, another verse, verse 23, that brings this out. This idea of the Sabbath principle in practice. And you and I have all experienced this. I experienced it recently when I moved into my house and I planted for the very first time a fruit tree, a lime tree. Man, I was excited. I love limes. That first year I couldn't wait to get some limes. Not a one. What the heck? I thought I had a dud. Second year, got a couple of limes, but man, I was so excited. I just picked one off, cut into it. It's the nastiest lime I ever had in my life. It's year five, and it's starting to happen. And what practically I experience is what God tells us is how he wired creation in Leviticus 19, verse 23. As he tells the people, the fruit of any tree you plant, for the first three years, the fruit of that tree is to be cut off. Don't consume it, because it's not worth anything. And then he says, but in year four, the tree is going to start becoming mature. And you could eat it, but instead of eating it, now like the first fruits of the harvest, you give the fruit of that tree to God as an offering. Again, establishing in us the recognition of God provides. And then he says in year five, that's when you can start eating it. And if you wait till year five, you will have a fruitful tree. You're going to have one of those lime trees where you're filling up shopping bags, giving away limes to your neighbors because you don't know what to do with them. I don't know what to do with all these limes. I just I can't handle them anymore. <laughs> the point here that we see in our own lives that God wants us to see, what we see in nature, what God shows us about time and the Sabbath through the land is intended to be a reflection and an encouragement, a model for our own lives. Beloved, we sit in our world today and we budget our time. We stuff our time into pockets, rationing it the way we budget money. Dave Ramsey ought to create a whole new thing because everyone would flock to it. Not about financial peace, but about time management. Because we treat it the same way. We, we make distinctions, you and I. We talk this way between regular time and quality time. And we all talk and we all know. We open, there's no secret here. We all know the consequences of not taking the time we are given. High blood pressure, heart attacks, broken relationships, sleep deprivation, poor eating habits, and so forth. And yet knowing these things... Hearing that we ought to, that we should try to take a break, that leaves most of us simply feeling like we've got just one more thing we've got to squeeze into our lives. Beloved, we all feel the stress of busyness, myself included. We all tell ourselves we know we need to take a break. We all say that we should stop and smell the roses. But the truth is, in the church, let alone out there, in the church, we all believe there just never seems to be enough time to rest. The truth that Leviticus gives us this morning is that if we follow our Father's instructions, if we embrace the spiritual habit of keeping Sabbath, we will have all the time we need. We will have more than enough time. More than enough time. Ironically, the comparison between money and time is, is, is very, works very, very well because what God is giving us here about time is a lot like what he says about our money about tithing. Just as people, and I've experienced this, if you haven't, then I'm going to hook you up with some people. Just as people who give generously never seem to run out of money. People who give generously, who give it back to God, I'm not saying they're rolling in the Benjamins. What I'm saying is they never run out of the money that they need. People who give generously never run out of money. In the same way, I have found that people who have a habit of carving out time for Sabbath never seem to run out of time. I actually think this is the, one of the most overlooked um, and yet deeper points that Jesus tries to make with Martha 
when she gets ticked off at her sister Mary. You remember this, right? Martha gets ticked off with her sister Mary because Martha is working and sweating and going, 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 and Mary isn't lifting a finger and instead is sitting with Jesus. Mary chooses to stop and listen, to be with Jesus, to Sabbath, to be in relationship, to be dependent upon him, rather than working to make it all happen like Martha. And one of the deeper realities is this understanding of dependence, of being in relationship. And here now from what we've heard this morning, Jesus' words when he says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Mary is living in dependence upon me, and she's going to have all the time she needs. You can keep trying to make it happen, and you're going to continually be frustrated that you just don't have enough time. Beloved, those who wait upon the Lord, those who abide in the presence of our Father, testify they always have more than enough time. Although time is finite, God somehow gives us minutes as fast as we spend them. Imagine that. You just received another minute right now. It's a whole different perspective and orientation. Instead of tracking how long the service is and what you have going on, realize you've just been given another minute by the Lord. And another, and another It all shifts if we live in dependence upon him because sacred time is God's time and we need it. God has a better vision for our life, for for our life, for us and for this world. It's this vision of an eternal life that includes rest and enjoyment without end. A life freed from the worries and anxieties of this age. And this isn't just pie in the sky. This isn't just fantasy. This is reality that God has in store for us. Our Father's greatest desire, why he invites and challenges us, is he wants to teach us how to live in that time zone. To experience abundant life. To experience a life lived in worship where our horizons don't narrow. They expand to encompass the inbreaking of heaven here on earth. A life where seconds and minutes and weeks and years that we greedily hoard and try to hold on to yet slip through our fingers, a life where years and months and weeks and minutes and seconds are simply the beats and rests of an amazing symphony that never stops. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The book of Hebrew declares, those who enter God's rest also cease from their labors as God did his. I heard a voice from heaven, concurs Revelation. Blessed are the dead who from now on die in the Lord. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labors. And Jesus Christ, the Lord of the Sabbath, declares himself the source of that Sabbath rest when he says to us, come unto me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. At the core of our beliefs as followers of Christ is the conviction that in Christ, what is coming, what is coming far exceeds what now exists, even in the most glorious experiences that we have had or will have. The best is yet to come and we have all the time we need. And by reminding us that this life is not all there is, God gives us the Sabbath to whet our appetite for eternity. Because our Father's called us, we say it in the benediction these last several weeks, we'll say it again, our Father calls us to be a different kind of community, 
a people set apart, a royal priesthood. So, beloved, let us mark and keep the time we have been given, playing our instruments, the skills and gifts that God has given us within the rhythm and music of the Sabbath, careful to pause during the rests so that we may all play together on cue. I started this sermon by asking you a question or raising this, this tension. Why should we improve upon creation? This temptation of improving upon creation. Beloved, why should we bother trying to improve creation when we don't follow the Lord's instructions in the first place? But if we follow our Father's instructions, if we acknowledge that all time can be holy, just like any place can be holy, then we will awaken to a new and deeper reality that releases us from the tyranny of our schedules and our calendars. And yes, together with all creation, we can rest in God. Amen? Amen. Amen.